You're listening to the Cars the Carlisle Network, podcast episode number 103, Lou Intercast, De Tommaso Pantera. Cars of Carlisle is your favorite internationally downloaded podcast about all things automotive. Darren and his CFC team are ever searching for interesting automotive happenings, real stories about real car people, and fun features to inform and entertain you. Each week, the Cars of Carlisle crew brings you show topics ranging from car shows to team adventures to auto racing weekends to behind-the-scenes human interest stories from car nuts that live across town, across the country, or even across the globe. Come join the road trip. Today, it's all about Italian styling and American power. In this episode, Sam and Lou discuss the legendary De Tommaso Pantera. Produced by Argentinian Alejandro De Tommaso, this Italian-style body, paired with an American muscle engine, became one of the most unique vehicles of the 70s. Cars of Carlisle covers the history of American variations of the Pantera that were sold right alongside Lincolns and Mercury's at the dealership lot. It's time to slide into this mid-engine icon. So, let's get revved up! Hello and welcome back, Cubers, to your favorite informative automotive podcast. I am your trusted host, Darren, and this is episode 103. Really excited for you to hear all about the Pantera today. In fact, what a gorgeous car. Uh, I think it's beautiful today. Absolutely stunning in the year 2020, and you figure it goes back to the early 70s. That's remarkable. Nearly a 50-year-old car that is jaw-dropping. So, what a great, uh, great car, and I'm excited for you to hear... Cars of Carlisle team members, Sam Farringer and Lou Genacopoulos get into the weeds on that and tell you all about it. In fact, big thanks to uh, our team members. And just hope you guys are doing great. Uh, in spite of everything going on with the pandemic, I uh, hope everyone's staying strong, getting some things done in the garage or projects, or maybe getting caught up on old, uh, uh, old articles or um, back issues of car magazines or Hemmings or whatever it might be. But hope you're uh, getting some, caught up on some things now that we're all spending more time at home or possibly in our own home garages, etc. But uh, hope, again, you're all doing well. If there's anything that we can do or there's anything that we can do to help your small business or just, uh, just with the community of Cars of Carlisle, no matter where you are, whether it's across town in Carlisle or on the opposite end of the globe, Asia, uh, wherever it might be, we, uh, you know, Europe... South America, it's uh, essentially we're all one globe, one community. So let us know. Reach out to us, carsofcarlisle at outlook.com, or you can certainly uh, reach us through our website, carsofcarlisle.com. Want to do a special shout out to our friends at Porsche Mechanicsburg. In fact, they've been working for months now on the unveiling of the new Porsche Taycan and uh, an exclusive event which has been rescheduled um, from from a previous date to possibly May 8th, and we are staying in touch with them. That may be moved again just based on all the uh, restrictions of, of gathering in common locations, etc. So we'll certainly keep you apprised of that. And segueing to a similar topic, our, our friends and family at Carlisle Events, uh, as far as the nine shows they're hoping to have uh, carried out this year in Carlisle. As with other seasons, the 2020 season is a little bit different, obviously, with all of our, our travel currently restricted and 
uh, not able to do some of the things we're used to in our car community, car hobby. But uh, I'll I stay in touch with Mike Garland, the public relations manager at Carlisle Events on a weekly basis, and certainly will keep you apprised. In fact, not a bad thing to check out um, directly on their website where they keep it up to date on carlisleevents.com. Uh, you can monitor the schedule changes necessary as a result of the COVID-19 situation. Also, we just wanted to let you know too that we know that this is a trying time. This is around the point in the year when we're all ready to take the covers off our cars, do the clay bar, the waxing, get everything ready to do some cruising, some uh, cars and coffee, get to some local car shows, whatever it might be. And we know that's all also very much restricted. So the team members here at Cars of Carlisle, along with some other friends in the hobby, in the business, uh, we are working behind the scenes, more to follow, but we're working right now diligently to perhaps pull something together where we could do a virtual car show. And we know there are multiple ones out there, and uh, by all means, uh, we want to at least give you guys a chance to participate, and we're even looking into having some celebrity judges. So. We'll pull together the, the rules of the, of the contest and what have you and have different classifications and uh, categories, but could be pretty fun, especially as best we can do with our cars spending more time in the garage and driveway than out on the back roads. So stay tuned on that. We'll get more to you on that. And uh, lastly, just wanted to say that we have a trivia question today that uh, honors Italy, if you will. In fact, you heard just last week we're starting to do... Uh, a shout out to all of our, our fans and Cubers across the globe. Uh, last week we had done the closing in Spanish. This week we'll do it in Italian. Uh, so our friends in Italy, stay tuned for that. And uh, the trivia question is right in line with that. So, as you're going to learn, of course, uh, in this week's Intercast with Sam and Lou, they're going to be focusing on the Pantera, which is a vehicle conceived by the Italian design firm Ghia. Why not showcase all things Italian? The trivia question for today is this. There were multiple iterations and models of the Pantera uh, that were released within the US, um, one of which was the Pantera L. What does the L stand for? That answer at the end of this episode. So for now, we're gonna throw it to Sam and Lou. Go ahead, you fellas. Thank you, Darren, for the introduction. And on today's Sam and Lou Intracast, we will be covering the Pantera, which was a brilliantly theorized idea by Ford, not perfectly executed. Sam, what are we going to cover specifically? Yeah, today we're going to cover, we'll, we'll start out talking a little bit about uh, Alejandro or later known Alessandro uh, Di Tommaso and kind of where he came from, some of his early cars we'll touch on. And then we're going to hop into the American production models of the Pantera, uh, which spanned from the 71 to 74 model years. Yes, uh, the cars that we see pretty frequently now come up. Uh, Hemmings always has features about them. They've been shown on TV shows like Fast and Loud. Ring Brothers did a really cool modernized version, but when they first came out, they really weren't all they were supposed to be. You'd think the idea, right, Italian-bodied, American drivetrain, Ford GT car parts, it would be cool. But we'll get into that. Uh, as you said, we'll start kind of with the founder of De Tommaso, Alejandro, a.k.a. Alessandro De Tommaso. 
he was born of uh, Italian and Argentinian descent. His father was a native Italian. His mother was a native Argentinian. He grew up for most of his life in Argentina. Uh, his father and mother were both pretty well known. His parents together ran a farm and his father was really influential in the country, not even being from Argentina originally. Uh, he actually rose to the rank of the nation's prime minister before suddenly passing away of a sudden heart attack. So after that happens, De Tommaso himself gets into a lot of his father's footsteps, right? Um, he actually tries to overthrow while being involved with a, a dissident newspaper um, from Argentina's strongman Juan Perón. And this really forces De Tommaso to flee to Italy to really save his life. So moves to Modena, becomes a Maserati mechanic, and Maserati is aware that De Tommaso has a, a racing origin, uh, especially in South America. He was a passionate race car driver, um, has really well-known grassroots racing and just a, an overall need for speed. So they pick him as a factory driver, even though he was just working for them as a mechanic. And he ends up racking up a bunch of wins internationally, uh, really represents Maserati well. And through this, he also has his wife, who is a co-driver, which is kind of crazy. Um, her name, Elizabeth Isabel Haskell. She actually reigns from the United States, and her family is a family of racers, both on the racetrack with automobiles, but also on the horse track. She's also extremely wealthy. Her family owns Rowan Industries, which is a, an international industrial corporation. It's run by her brother and brother-in-law. And this is where Alejandro convinces, really, his brother-in-law to finance him. And what we mean by that is start De Tommaso. Sam, before we go into De Tommaso and the company, the car company, right? Not, not Alejandro. Just want to give me a high-level overview of his cars. He, he really started, right, with a lot of prototypes that were essentially just racing prototypes, formula styled series. Anything I'm missing there? No, I, I I think he had a Formula One car that didn't do great. I know he had a bunch of single seater uh race cars that he was working on. And I think he he did work kind of with uh Carol Shelby at one point too, uh developing uh racing cars. So I don't think you're missing anything until, you know, we get into the, you know, like the Vallelonga where he actually starts uh, doing production cars. But, yeah, a lot of racing prototypes uh, and, and, you know, stuff, stuff along that line. And both he and his wife were pretty accomplished racers. Uh, Elizabeth, a.k.a. Isabel. Uh, same thing with Alejandro, a.k.a. Alessandra. I don't know what's going on there. But um, Isabel was actually the first woman ever to race at Sebring in, in 1955. And De Tommaso as a company was formed in... 1959 so we'll just kind of get we'll pick up from 59 they build their their first few cars but nothing really takes off until 1964 when they have the valunga 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 great uh 
and this is actually powered by a Ford Cortina 1.5 liter engine. It's a steel backbone chassis that translates into later models of De Tomaso automobiles, ultimately to the Pantera. But the say the word again for me, the name. The Vallelonga. Sure. The Vallelonga is really his first production style car, but more importantly, his first step in the relationship with Ford. So that's where everything kind of takes off in this partnership and De Tomaso still operating as its own small entity. They're only producing a few cars a year, similar to how Ferrari was at that time and Maserati, et cetera. Yeah. And so, actually the, so the De Tomaso plant was in Italy and it was like right down the street. Um, I thought it was, I think it's like right next door to the Ferrari plant at the time. Yeah. Right. He started in uh, Modena, right? Yep. Correct. So, we have the Valunga, aka the. <laughs> You're never gonna get this right, are you? No. The Valalunga. It's a very small portion in De Tomaso's famed failures. Um, so we go from the Valalunga. Did I get it right? Very close. All right, moving on. To the Mangusta, which is a same steel-styled backbone chassis. That really is the foundation for the car and, and what made them really good handling cars when they were working well. This one is also uh, Ford powered, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And I, just a quick note on the Mangusta. Um, so that actually means mongoose. Um, and it was named thus so because the mongoose is one of the few animals that will actually try to kill a cobra. Um, I guess the story is, is that Shelby was involved in the chassis and drivetrain at one point leading up to the Mangusta and then Shelby got pulled away and started working on another project. So, uh, Alejandro or Alessandro, uh, decided to use that and made it with the body from an American designer. And I can't remember his name that had, uh, you know, a lot of Italian lineage and made those two together. Yeah. Really similar to how the Cobra was born. A lot of international, parts trading with chassis and engines and suspension, etc. So the Mangusta's built and, and does fairly well, uh, well enough to catch the eye of none other than Lee Iacocca, who we've talked about at length on this podcast, Intracast Series. Lee is the founder of the Mustang, had a pretty big part, although my favorite movie, Ford vs. Ferrari, overplayed what his actual involvement was in the Shelby American and Ford partnership taking on Lamar, but Lee gets, you know, wind of the Mangusta and the limited success it did have in Italy. Uh, clearly a good looking car. Feel free to Google it and starts the, really a relationship with De Tommaso. Now, obviously they had some working relationship in the past, not only from knowing Shelby and having a familiar face in between, but also Ford is selling De Tommaso Cortina engines. So Lee, uses Ray Geddes, who is really good at international diplomatic relationships, because Ray is really the guy between Shelby American and Ford for the Lamar program. What Lee was in the movie Ford vs. Ferrari is what Ray Geddes should have been portrayed as. So Ray, who works as a Ford liaison, first between Shelby American and Ford, and now is the mediator between De Tommaso and Pantera. They ultimately come to a deal where Ford is going to own 80% of De Tommaso's 
company, including some brands he owns that are, are popular, especially when you look at the Pantera name. Uh, Gia, which I think is a pretty popular name as a coach builder, as well as Fignale. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, and a quick note on Gia. I'm almost certain De Tommaso uh, later on in life sold Gia back to Ford and made a ton of money on it. Just wait, we're getting there. Okay. Well, I don't know if we're getting there specifically, but there's a little horse trading that goes back and forth throughout the years between De Tommaso and Ford. So you might be asking yourself, where's De Tommaso getting all this money to build these cars, to finance it? It's all coming from the Haskell family through Rowan Industries. So it's all really U.S. funded and ultimately is going to be a U.S. product. It only makes sense that they launch this really cool sports car that's highly European influenced in the U.S. So this deal is struck and literally before a Pantera is even produced, uh, knowing that that's going to be the car in, in everyone's mind to break into the U.S. market tragedy strikes. Um, in March of 1970, Rowan Industries leadership led by Amory Haskell and his um, brother-in-law, I guess it would be, it's, it's Isabel's brother-in-law. Amory, and, who is the president and then the vice president, uh, are coming back and landing in a, a Newark airport. And unfortunately, their plane, as it's descending, strikes, side strikes a building and they die. Uh, Amory Haskell and John Ellis was the president. So with this, it's March of 1970. Pantera still has not been produced. Rowan Industries leadership, the existing leadership that's still around, pulls out. They want nothing to do with financing automobile production in Italy. Ford gets wind of this. They don't want to scrap the program. They strike a deal to buy the remaining 20%, including both Ghia and Vignale, from Dave Tommaso, still having Dave Tommaso as a very heavy player in everything. So they do that. The Pantera is now going to be launched into production and presented at the Modena Auto Show in March of 1970. Sam, what happens next? So after uh, the 1970, uh, March 1970 debut, it also was presented at the 1970 New York Motor Show uh, just a couple weeks later. About a year after that uh, was when the first production of the car started, and they eventually got up to about three per day. Now, uh, people who are familiar with the Pantera know that the early models, uh, mainly meaning the 1971 Pantera, had a litany of issues. And we'll, we'll get into them. But part of it, you know, they were producing three a day and uh, the quality was not quite up to par. So I just want to break down this uh, debut model of the 1971 Pantera in if you were going to buy it off the lot. And I, I think, Lou, do we want to talk about real quick how you could actually buy this at your local Lincoln dealership? Yeah, it, it's weird, right? Being a luxury car or a really high dollar car. Well, it, it technically would be a supercar sitting yeah. next to you know, like a grocery getter. It's kind of weird that this a car, continental. It, yeah. It, you know, it's like it, you, it'd be like nowadays if a Countach was sitting next to, you know, like a Ford F-150, it'd just be odd to see that at a dealership, but yeah, you could go pick one up and uh, they cost about nine to $10,000 of uh, at that time, which is roughly about $60,000 today. 
1971, 1,007 cars were produced for the American market. And real quick, we are only going to talk about the American market today. Um, we might delve, you know, a couple little facts about the other markets. And he actually continued in the other markets long after it stopped in America. But just for our focus, only 1,007 made it to our shores. And the first 75 cars were European imports and are known for their push-button door handles. And they had completely hand-built bodies uh, by Vignali. So here's where, you know, the Ford connection comes in. These were powered by a Cleveland 351. It's a car that pushed out 330 horsepower with an 11-1 compression ratio. And I think it had 380 foot-pounds of torque. So it was a little more – they used the Cleveland because it's a little more compact than the 351 Windsor. Um, and I, I don't know that we've mentioned this yet, but this is a mid-engine car, um, which is also extremely uh, unique at the time. Extremely and European. Very European, very Italian, really. To my knowledge, the next mid-engine American car, quote-unquote American, that's produced is the 2020 Corvette. Wasn't the Fiero a mid-engine car? Yeah, they don't really count, though. Okay, well. And the Corvairs, I, never the mind. Corvair, Scratch technically, that. Yeah, okay. Anyway, so with that mid-engine, they had a great weight distribution for the time of production car. So that, you know, there's a 42 to 58% uh, weight ratio, which is insanely good for a car like that, especially for the price. Because you're looking at, you know, $60,000 as compared to $120,000 for the Lamborghinis of the time, the Ferraris, Maseratis, things like that. But this car could do the 0 to 60 in 5.5, which was right on par with cars at the time. Uh, it was, you know, it, it was a low-end option built with American muscle and an American uh, ZF transaxle, which there's anecdotal evidence that they used the same transaxle in the GT40. They also used it in another Maserati, the Maserati Bora. And that the transaxle wouldn't fit, so they actually had to flip it upside down to get it to fit in there. So, pretty neat. Uh, but it also came with some luxury features, which were, it, at least in the European and the Italian markets, looked at as kind of novelties. Uh, they weren't overly common in cars like that, and that includes you know, power windows, that AC it had that annoying ding when your car doors open, which you know really wasn't common for cars of that nature. Especially cars that did get any type of air conditioning in an Italian-bodied car, an Italian-produced car, it was basically just air blowing on you. Jay Leno makes fun of it all the time. A Maserati AC and Ferrari AC, if it came with it, it was bad to begin with. So it was essentially just here, a fan. <laughs> Which it was a, a fan that pushed right, air through. Which we know as Americans, right, with the the big frigid air. GM compressors or Ford's market or whatever it is, it was like going into an icebox on cars that did actually have AC. So it really didn't translate to the American market. No. And this car, uh, it, it also had, uh, while we're talking about power accessories, it had uh, four-wheel power brakes. However, it did not have power steering, which is just kind of odd that they would do one and not the other. It also came with... Uh, I'm going to butcher this one, but Campagnolo or Campagnolo cast magnesium wheels. They're 15 by eights in the rears and 15 by sevens in the front had independent rear suspension with control arms and coil springs, uh, sway bars, rack and pinion steering, you know, everything you would think of on a high end. 
handling car. And it, one of the nice things with the high torque engine that uh, Ford had put in, I think we had it at 380 foot pounds of torque. It reduced the need for excessive gear changing at low speeds. So it made the car actually pretty manageable in your like daily driving around. So Lou, now that I've highlighted kind of the good stuff of the car and I, I, I don't want to go on without saying the car is beautiful. I mean, just absolutely beautiful. Not only that, it was highly innovative, right? Like let's not glance over that. This is one of the first cars that has four wheel power brakes, rack and pinion steering in 1971, independent rear suspension that actually functions and works well. In theory, on top of a bulletproof American engine, I don't want to say running gear because the transaxles weren't fantastic, but gorgeous Italian body lines, at a relatively competitive price for what the market dictated. In theory, this was the perfect sports car. Yeah, I'd, I'd say extremely competitive. I mean, you're looking at half of what the competitors are. Still looks as good as, you know, any car from that era. It, it I, I don't understand how it didn't take off. Uh, but, you know, the American market, as we've noticed, as we've done research on some of these different car companies, the American market's fickle. And, uh, you know, sometimes a good idea just doesn't take off. And the issues that you are going to list out would make anyone insane. So let's go to that. Yeah. Um, yeah, these cars had some issues. Now, the first issue, and this isn't really an issue, uh, but I did want to bring it up. When they did, they took it to the auto shows and when they debuted it, it actually had slapback uh, racing style seats, uh, which I don't know if you've seen a picture of them, Louie, but they look awesome. I really want a set for the Nova. <laughs> but consumers who were there thought they looked extremely uncomfortable, and uh, that ended up getting changed for in production. Um, but I don't know. I liked them. One of the biggest problems – well, no, not one of the biggest problems because they're all pretty big problems. But if you were over six foot without modification to the seat rails, you were not driving this car. Can't buy uh, it. No. You'd, you would have to drop – You'd have to do some, you know, custom fab work to to make it work. And then to exacerbate that issue, because the front wheel well, the driver's side wheel well, uh, was pretty much right up where your pedals would be. The pedals had to be offset to the right, uh, which made for an awkward driving position. Not, I guess, not the worst thing. If, you know, you're me, I'm, I'm 5'11", I'd fit in it, and I'm sure I could figure out the pedals over time, but... Obviously not great for a consumer market uh, that's looking for a car that they can get in and go. So next and probably the biggest issue I would say were, especially on these early models with the handmade body panels, and actually Ford later stepped in and we'll get into that to fix this problem, but because they were handmade and there were a lot of defects in them, there was a ton of body solder that was just left over in the cars. The fit and finish was horrible, absolutely terrible. And to, you know, compound with that problem, they also didn't do any anti-rust treatments. Uh, it was very Italian of the time to, you know, just uh, make a very good piece of machinery and it would hold up over time. It was artwork. Problem. It was artwork. But De Tommaso wasn't – obviously he's selling this for half the price. He was not putting that kind of level of effort and – or, or wasn't able to put that lever, level of effort. And I had heard that there were some issues with he didn't have the, the ability to produce cars at the way 
that he had kind of promised to Ford. I think he had actually promised Ford 8,000 of these in the first year. Um, and obviously he only sold a little over a thousand. So again, they stepped in to help with that later, but it, it just overall, when you got the car to America, they just rusted out absolutely everywhere. Um, I was reading a buying guide. If you were, you know, looking right now to go out and buy one and it was, it started to say, you know, where to look for rust. And I'm just reading through and I'm like, it, it's the whole car. You, every single piece of the car is probably rusted. And if it's not, you got a very good survivor or it's been completely redone. So some of the other minor things, the cigarette lighter was in the center console and the center console, other than this small flaw was actually pretty well designed, but you'd put your arm down anytime you were driving the car and you would automatically start lighting up the cigarette lighter. So that was a little weird. Just nuance, annoying nuance. Yeah. And like I said, so the center console was set up well. There was gauges like in the your your temp gauges, everything like that, oil pressure. It, it, they were all angled towards the designer or towards the driver. I'm sorry. They looked great, but the speedo and the tack are obscured by your hands. And you also can't see them at night and you can't see them in bright light. So you can only see them in like good lighting. So even like just that little nuance stuff where you're just like, it just wasn't quite right. So after the 1971, we're going to move into the 1972 Pantera, but Lou, what, what happened with Ford here uh, to, to kind of elevate the Pantera from, you know, essentially some guy's garage to an actual production vehicle. So, a big issue as well, uh, the safety cage that they built was faulty. It, it just failed in crash situations. So Ford employed a, another old buddy and still current partner with them, Holman and Moody, who we've talked about previously, to repair a lot of these mechanical issues. The AC, the overheating, that was really in like a high percentage of, of cars that actually hit the roads and were sold instant problems uh the rust as you mentioned was uh it, it just compounded all the issues especially when ford is taking a lot of these repairs under warranty and eating the cost and a lot of man hours subsequently so it, it really added up quick ford wasn't too happy as we could probably imagine and like any other company in 1972 they had to adhere to new federal regulations and meet new emission standards. So the 72 Pantera had many of the same problems, although some were fixed. But it was less of a Pantera, if you want to say that, just like any other 72 conventional American muscle car at that point. Yeah, the 72 Pantera was better, much better, actually, in fit and finish. So Ford stepped in. They introduced the precision stamp body panels to solve a lot of those issues. And actually, uh, later on in life, and the reason the Pantera continued was because De Tommaso kept the molds for the body panels, so he could then continue to produce them. But it added a couple different things. So like you said, you know, 1972, terrible year for muscle cars, supercars, exotics, whatever you want to call it. They introduced a new four-bolt main Cleveland. Uh, it's a 5.8 liter, 351 we went from an 11 to one compression to an 8.6 to one compression. You know, you had to meet U.S. emission standards and be able to run on a lower octane fuel, which was being offered at the time. So it, it, very disappointing. They, D. Tommaso did do a couple things 
And again, here we have another parallel with, uh, you know, our boy, Carol Shelby. So to offset some of that loss of compression, they added the Cobra Jet cam. So it's a it's a cam. It's got the same lift and duration as the 428 factory performance cams do and added a dual point distributor and factory headers to the car. Other than that, the car remained largely the same, uh, obviously, which huge improvements to the fit and finish of the car. But you did lose horsepower at the end of the day. Yeah, so it's getting better. We're, we're getting to a point where. Ford probably feels more comfortable with their name stamped on a large majority of the car, especially with precision, correct body panels. Then Ford takes a one step further in 72, launching the 72 and a half Pantera, the Lusso or Pantera L, which they debuted in August toward the end of the model year, which had a large black single front bumper that incorporated a, a built-in airfoil to ultimately reduce front end lift at high speeds, which they were seeing with the prior cars, rather than the separate bumperettes that were still being used as the way to reduce it. They introduced this airfoil and made the car just a little bit more stable. However, they did also put a newer version of the Cleveland that had a ultimately a lower power out point, about 266 horsepower. Yeah, so that's down from 310 from the 1971 year, uh, 1972 and 1972 and a half with the the Lusso. Uh, it was down to 266 horsepower, and you know obviously that was felt across car car companies everywhere. You know this isn't obviously unique to De Tomaso, but uh, it, it was uh, indicative of a problem that went much further in the car community. So after the 1972 model we had the 1973 and the l model being the most popular uh featured a lot of factory upgrades uh and a lot of fixes to some of the smaller issues um the interior fit and finish stuff the 1973 was actually road test magazine's import car of the year it beat ferrari it beat maserati it beat porsche it beat lamborghini it beat everything in its class uh that just shows you how much improved it was over the 1971 cars, uh, for sure. Yeah, which is really a, an impressive engineering feat. If you think about it, Ford is losing money and still dumping a ton of resources in to make this car right. And Dave Tommaso at this point is probably just scrambling to keep his product afloat. Now, obviously, he handled most of the stuff in the Euro market, but in the U.S. market, Ford did try and do everything they can to make this a success. And they reap some reward with this car being named import car of the year by uh, road test. Yep. The 1974 Pantera is the last year of the American produced or produced for America Panteras that were available. So the only cool feature really that they did in the 1974 ones that we're going to touch on today is they offered the optional GTS badging which the GTS badging came from the European line of Panteras. They had uh, an upgraded uh, solid lifter engine, but of course we did not get that. We didn't get the higher compression solid lifter engine that the Europeans got. And after that, you know, this is where we're going to talk a little bit more about the history of the Pantera, but this is kind of where it ends in American history uh, as Ford stopped importing the Pantera in 1975. Yeah, for a total of what, just around 5,500 cars sold in the U.S. market? 
according to De Tommaso, uh, they sold 5,286. According to Ford, they sold 6,091. So to be safe, yeah, we'll split the difference somewhere in the five to 6,000 range, which, again, I want to go back to De Tommaso had promised to build 8,000 in 1971 alone. Over the entire run... You know, 1971 and 1974, he built at best 6,000. Yeah, just a massive overpromise, underdeliver. But he still produces them now, really through the 90s. If if we want to just give a high level overview of the Pantera and how it lives on, then we can get back to the U.S. production figures and and really their values today. Yeah, and so technically. He produced them until 1996. Now, they stopped production, but the last one took until 1996 to be made. Uh, so I believe that was actually still, I'm almost certain, was a 1990 model. I'm pretty sure <laughs> that was built in 1996. I think it's, it's important to note that De Tommaso, later on in his life at this point, he was still pretty involved, but he did have a, a really bad stroke in 93, which pretty much was the beginning of the end for De Tommaso as a company. He didn't pass away until 2003. Yeah, so up leading up to the 90s, uh, late 70s, all the way through, Tommaso continued to build the car, and uh, he kept making improvements as it went on. But again, nothing came to America. There was some gray market importers in the 80s, Pantera America and Amerisport who would import them to the U.S. I don't know if they performed right-to-left-hand conversions on those or not, or they just you know, brought them in as is, kind of like they do with Skylines now. I don't know if they just bring them in as right-hand drives or not, but it'd be a cool thing to find out. So also in 1974, Ford discontinued the 351 Cleveland, so in America, but the production continued in Australia until 1982. So uh, they... Tommaso, he started sourcing them from Australia, and uh, those engines, they were tuned in Switzerland, and all range, they had a bunch of range of outputs, because depending on what you what tuning you ordered with it, but they were sitting around the 350 horsepower, much closer to, or actually uh, surpassing the original 1971s, and significantly better than the 72s, uh, but again, they didn't have to deal with U.S. emission standards, so that was, you know, a, a pretty big boon for horsepower numbers. And then in 1980, De Tommaso decided to change over the chassis number, and he started it on car number 9000. So I guess they completely revised the entire thing, started not from scratch, but uh, completely redesigned it. And they also changed a lot with the the actual uh, the body stylings of the cars. So they offered the GT5 and the GT5S, uh, I believe starting in the early 80s, I think the, G- yeah, the GT5S started in uh, 84, but they had bonded and rivered on fiberglass wheel arch extensions to give it a little bit of more space and to give it that real wide body wheel arch look. It just it made it look like a big, wide profile car. It is important to note, though, that these later cars, not the early 71 through 74s, uh, the later cars were a couple inches big, or wider and longer than the 70s cars, the early 70s cars. Out they of look those, like a Countach, like the way yeah, they that do they look like a Countach. Blew them out. Yeah, I mean they they gave it that wide low profile. I saw some videos, of some guys getting out of them. I mean it it looks like 
they're like two inches off the ground. Right. But back to the GTS, so 183 of those were built, and they kept building the GTS, uh, did custom orders, very limited basis until the late 80s. Yeah, I think it's also important to note, while this is all going on, Dave Tommaso has been, I, I don't even know how to say it, he was basically forced by the Italian government to take over Maserati that they just forced into bankruptcy. Maserati was failing drastically in the 80s. De Tommaso takes over in 87, turns the company around tenfold. Largely the reason they're still in operation today is because of Alessandro De Tommaso. So he's managing both. Uh, obviously, Pantera at this point isn't producing a lot of cars per year, right? They're all custom-built one-off type uh, orders. So sorry, I didn't mean to interject, but he was still really busy and ultimately successful elsewhere. No, so that leads me in. I mean, he took over with Maserati in 87. Um, so where we left off here was actually 88 when Australia ran out of the 351 Clevelands. So he began installing the 351 Windsors instead of the Clevelands in. And about 7,200 of those cars were built. Then in 1990, the 351, he decided to replace with a Ford 302, which is a 4.95 liter engine. And kind of restyled the entire car with uh, Marcello Gandini, did a complete suspension redesign, and again partially uh, went back and revised the chassis. So the new model was called the Pantera 90 SI. It was introduced in 1990, and only 38 of them uh, were made until Pantera was phased out in 1993, which, like I said earlier, the last one was built in 1996, and I believe only 40-some of them. I, I found a couple different numbers. The most confident I'm in saying is 41 total of the 90 SIs, but I don't know that. And they actually had offered those cars in a Targa model, which is pretty cool. And each one of those was taken off the line and actually converted over to a Targa model. So different iterations of the car ultimately it at its core for most of its life which is a, a really long 20 plus year production run it was the same car just with consistent improvements and then obviously the gandini built ones were drastically different underneath but really the most desirable are the u.s spec 71 through 74 that have taken a 15 years ago you can get these for pennies on the dollar uh, because they were just like when they were new, they had a quick lifespan. So they were really derelict. A lot of them today they're shooting up in value at a, a rapid rate. Sam, you were able to do some research into production figures, but also values today. Anything we want to share there? Yeah. So some of these values, they're a little undervalued on the chart that I found because uh, I, I did some research on my own. So, But you can generally expect to pay about this. So the 1971 models, uh, your average price that you're looking at, according to I believe this is directly off Hemmings, was 46000 Now, I believe this article was written a few years ago because most of the ones I'm seeing – uh, for any Pantera is actually closer to the 60 plus range, somewhere in that range. So, which is kind of crazy because it's selling for just around what it sold for brand new uh, back in the 70s. Yeah, it's wild. 
And I think it's also important to note that even though the later cars, the 72 and a halfs up were much better off the line, there isn't much variance in the model year. A, a 71 through 74 Pantera ultimately commands the same dollar figure, which isn't as characteristic if you look at you know, the muscle cars of that era, right? A 70 versus 72 Chevelle wide difference in value, but it's almost the opposite effect where off the line, a 72 Pantera was much better of a car than a 71. Yeah. Now they're all pretty consistent in price. Uh, the Lusos, uh, the Pantera L's and the GT S's, they're a little more expensive. Uh, you know, you're looking five to 10,000 more, but obviously, like I said, you're going to need to look when you're out buying a Pantera at all the problems that there are out there, which huge one being rust. You know, I, I, I don't know that you're going to find a Pantera that hasn't been touched by restoration that doesn't have rust on it. So that is something to look at when you're out looking for one of these cars. The other thing is, is Panteras were a car and De Tommaso, I don't know if he openly endorsed this, but they were a car with a, a following of people who did a lot of modifications to the car as the cars be with the cars being, I don't know a better way to say this, but crappy out of the box, you know, there was some stuff that they needed to do that a lot of people personally did. Uh, a lot of stuff with the seats were changed. Uh, the gauges were changed out suspension upgrades. Cause they wanted a car that was going to race. These cars weren't, you know, your, your Honda civic of the day, which maybe that's a bad example. Cause people mobbed the heck out of those, but you know, it, it wasn't like going, buying a, Chrysler town and country or something, you know, you were, you bought this car to race it and to drive it and to love it. So a lot of these cars are modded out. I don't know if you're going to ever find, I'm sure there are, and I'm sure there's some in, you know, museums, a couple places and stuff like that, that are perfect examples. But a lot of them, you know, were modified by their users. Now I do have a very quick story I want to share with you, Lou. I don't know if you've heard this story yet or not. But there is a Pantera, maybe the most famous Pantera in the world, sits at Graceland, once owned by one Elvis Presley. I mean, who owned, Who else owns anything in Graceland that's other than Elvis? Exactly. Now, so this car, it, it's there's a story behind it. A, there's apparently a bullet hole. In, I was just going to ask this. Yes. yes, I know about this. Yeah, so there's a bullet hole in the steering wheel. And I guess the Pantera, they were, it was a yellow Pantera, if I'm correct. They were out driving it around. I can't remember who he was with. And they get it back. They get it off the tow truck. It didn't start, nothing. So Elvis took his gun out. And as he's telling him about it, he said that stupid car over there and shot the car. Now, how he just hit the steering wheel is, you know, kind of what makes it of the Elvis legend and everything. But yes, there's a hole in the steering wheel. And Elvis said after that, the car started right up and had no problems unbelievable it uh yep there's a, a 12 minute video on donut media about the elvis shot a hole in his car pantera other famous panteras the ring brothers did a a one-off render of the perfect print pantera it, it sold at auction for like 300 some thousand to richard rawlings who owns the gas monkey enterprise whatever you want to call it he then sold it back to the Ring Brothers, I believe, and he has flipped a couple Panteras. He, he's one of the 
more well-known collectors when it comes to Pantera, which also is a weird – I don't know. The name is just weird. Oh, I don't know if we've mentioned this yet, but Pantera is actually uh, uh, Panther in Italian, right? Yeah, sure. Or Spanish, one of the two. I can't remember. Right, but – the entire thing, right, to close out, in theory, it could have been one of the most influential American cars. And I'm just going to call it American because it was owned by Ford. End of story. Although it was produced in Italy and then massively messed up and then fixed in America, whatever. But just like other ideas that are rushed to the front line, Edsel's a good example. It failed. It was a good idea in theory, just massively failed. So think, think about that idea now, though. I mean, obviously, we're seeing it now. We're not quite seeing it to this extent with the, the new Corvette. But again, it's a mid-engine sports car. Now, I would say that it, it the new one has stylings, I guess. I don't know, Lou, what do you think? Like similar to like a McLaren. Yeah. The new Corvette, like it has that feel to it. But, you, you know, the... It's not like buying a, a Lamborghini with an LS in it, you know, no. which is what the Pantera looked like. It had very unique styling that was not at all American. And at least with the Corvette, you can see the evolution of where it was the Corvette. It does, you know, resemble some some sports cars from across the pond. But, it, you know, it's, it's not the same as what an Italian supercar with a, a Ford V8 in it was. Right. And, I mean, you go look at – like a Maserati Bora from the same lineage, 71 on up. It's a similar looking car, but the Pantera looks way better. Uh, Bora is kind of stretched out a little bit. It's got this long glass uh, deck lid. It just, it's not the same. So that's really it for the Pantera. It was a splash in the pan in the seventies. It's a really cult like following today and could be made to be a really good car, but anything else you got in closing? I don't know. I just wish uh, some car company would kind of take a crazy chance like this again. I would love to see something like this in our lifetime. You know, again, I guess there's cars out there that kind of break the mold, and but I would love to see a Ford or preferably a Chevy-powered Italian-looking car that you could buy off the lot, um, you know, when you go to pick your Silverado up. I, I think that would be awesome, and I think it would be cool to have it. And here – Obviously, you have a completely different engine note in uh, an American-made V8 as opposed to anything that you'd hear, you know, of that time period. So I'd, I'd just love to see it now, and I hope one car company, you know, does it here in the future. For seventy grand, if I gave you that, which I don't have, and I told you to go buy a Pantera or a 2020 Corvette, what are you doing? I'd buy a 2020 Corvette. Yeah, me too. I mean, That's I would tra- I would track that thing burn the tires off it within a day i'd prefer to do that i mean a pantera would be cool don't get me wrong but those 2020 vets are sweet yeah if i only had one it'd have to be the corvette it's not really a fair comparison so all right as always we appreciate you guys listening if you have any comments questions stuff that we got wrong because we do every episode just let us know thanks again guys stay safe out there we are back to studio a Thank you to Lou, to Sam. You guys do tremendous work. So proud to have you on the Cars of Carlisle team. 
as staff members, you guys put some hard work into things, and we're going to continue every four to six weeks to have an intercast featuring the hard work that Sam and Lou put into really diving deep and unpacking a particular topic. Uh, there's some topics that we've been discussing as a Cars of Carlisle team that they're working on, and we have a queue of uh, show ideas, both general shows as well as the intercasts, on the slate. So stay tuned for that. Lou, Sam, great work, guys. Thank you so much. I owe you a trivia answer. And the question that I posed at the beginning of the show was the various models that were released in the U.S. Um, there was one that was released actually in uh, 1972, but they actually marketed it as a 1972 and a half, a mid-year model. It was the Pantera L. And the question I had posed to you was, what does that L signify? The answer is Luso or luxury. In fact, uh, this was a, a U.S. market release. It had a um, single large black front bumper. With that, had a built-in airfoil that helped with uh, reducing some of the, the lift at higher speeds. Uh, it's a little bit different from the, the two separate bumperettes as, uh, that were used overseas. Um, the Cleveland engine had uh, power output at 266 horsepower. But one of the distinct, or some of the distinct things about the L model is it had some upgrades, factory upgrades. Uh, it addressed some of the problems and issues that the earlier cars had had. And interestingly enough, um, it was so vastly better. So by 1973, the De Tomaso Pantera was the, there was a magazine, Road Test was what it was called. So Road Test magazine had named it their import car of the year in 73 which at the time beat out the likes of Porsche, Lamborghini, Ferrari, Maserati. So um, the Pantera L definitely got the attention of the auto industry and uh, certainly the, the media here in the U.S. in 1972 and a half, 73. So that is this week's trivia question and answer. Again, I want to say thank you to all of our friends, fans, Cubers, no matter where you are, all around the U.S., around the globe, especially... Uh, at this time when everyone is, is struggling and, and doing their very best. Thanks for being part of this. Thanks for coming on the, this journey and uh, riding along with us. Continue to subscribe, share, promote, uh, send any kind of uh, comments or input, feedback. This is your podcast. We're simply at the helm trying to make it better and better week after week, month after month, just for you. So as, uh, as a tip of the hat to our friends in Italy, I will close today's episode with Guidare bene, stame bene, perditi cura di te, or drive well, be well, take care.